Okay, so the other day, I did a wedding for a young couple in our congregation. They got married over in Harrisonburg. Some of you were there. And at this wedding, it had all these different elements that are really normal, and it was wonderful and beautiful. And so you have the bride, she's coming forward, and then uh, and, and her, her dad walked her down, and the groom is standing here. You got the groomsmen to my left, and, and the, uh, the bridesmaids to the right. And just a wonderful moment for us to celebrate and come together and affirm their love in this moment. Several of you have probably been to a wedding recently and you've seen this. For most people in our society, it's kind of just like acts that you do or a, or a, a celebration or an event. Uh, and, the, and the focus is much more on, I don't know, like as a, as, a, as a guest to a wedding, you're thinking like, what are we gonna eat and when are we gonna eat? Or, or um, this is a beautiful view or whatever it might be. But that ceremony that we get to do, and I would say almost, if not every time, almost every culture, it's very similar. All of them portray this profound picture that Jesus himself described when he talked about who we are, in which there is a groom and there is a bride and there is love and there is commitment and there is devotion to one another. And then there are vows to uh, signify this commitment. There's usually a ring or something creative to seal this commitment. There's communion usually in some way. It bonds this commitment before God. There's prayer that blesses this marriage and this union. And then there's celebration afterwards. Everyone comes together, right? There's food, there's cake, there's dancing or music, whatever it might be. And there's a celebration afterwards. All these unions have a similar idea and they remind us of Christ's response to us and then our response back to him. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. When a couple comes down and then they stand there or, or you know, the, the, the dad walks the uh, daughter down and the groom is standing there, I'll usually begin by telling everybody, hey, you know, welcome. And I'll mention something along the lines of, this wedding ceremony is not just an event. This is a worship service unto God because it is God who created marriage to the first man, right, Adam? Which is so weird that I was named that, but no, no, no. <laughs> to the first man, he says, it is not good that he be alone. So, uh, so then <clears throat> what, if I recall, he puts Adam in this deep sleep, takes the rib, creates Eve, brings Eve to him, and then uh, brings them together in this union. And it is from that model that we find ourselves in marriage. Well, when the, and it's not always the, it's not always the father, but when the father walks his daughter down, I'll, I'll say, hey, you know, this is traditional for us to say who gives this woman to this man in marriage. And the man often replies, you know, her mother and I, or we do, or something along those lines. And it is this moment to signify this passing on. In this case, particularly, it was a younger daughter. Uh, so particularly when they're just younger, there's a sense of the father has been raising this daughter her, her whole life. And now, now he is giving, it's a, it's, it's a blend of a blessing and permission and excitement to say, now I'm entrusting you to her, young man. <laughs> so now it's your job to lead and care and protect and provide for her, right? There's that kind of connotation. 
I'm reminded of when that first came to mind for me when in kind of a, in a deep and profound way. A couple years, three years ago, our first daughter was born in April and it was only a week or two later that I did a wedding for a friend. It was Dwight and Angie's daughter. And uh, we were over there at the vineyard and I'm, here we have our little daughter. So she's, I think, two, two weeks old. And, and I remember in the reception afterward when Dwight is dancing with Katie, right, for the, the, the father-daughter dance. And I have the little, my own little daughter right here in my arms. And I remember thinking, this is like super surreal. Like I, here I have this, and in just 20 to 30 years or so, like I'm gonna be in this spot. What a crazy picture for me of what I want to be able to uh, strive for as, as a father of a daughter. So anyway, well, they come together, the husband or the, the, the groom and the bride, and then I'll ask them this question. <clears throat> I ask each of them, do you intend to have your bride like to the, to the groom, as your wife, to live together in this holy covenant of marriage? And do you promise to faithfully love her as long as you shall live? And the groom replies, I do, unless they run away. But that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened in any of the weddings I've done. To the bride, I'll say the same thing. Do you intend to have your groom as your husband to live together in this holy covenant of marriage? Again, holy covenant, not just, not just a handshake, not just some loose commitment that you might have, like you might have at like, a, I don't know, at a restaurant or a membership to the gym or something, but like a commitment, a covenant. And then do you promise to faithfully love him as long as you both shall live? And she replies, I do. That sort of a moment reminds us of Christ's love toward us. So let's talk about this. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus says this, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. In the context of that, he's being critiqued by the Jewish leaders about why his disciples are not fasting. But he uses this language of being their bridegroom. And from that, this idea and this image and this word picture continues throughout the early church. So what does it mean to be the bride of Christ? Or what does it mean to be the Christ? Or what, what does it mean for Christ to be our bridegroom? Well, there's several different pictures of this that kind of give us more detail. The first I wanna draw our attention to is found in Ephesians chapter five. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's a lengthier passage, and I'd like to, I'd like to read through most of it here. Ephesians 5 starting in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in this passage, did you see all these different descriptions of 
what it means for Christ to be our bridegroom, our eternal bridegroom, we see that he loves the church. We see that he gave himself up for the church. We see that he sanctifies the church with his word. We see that Christ desires to present a pure bride. We see that he nourishes the church, that he cherishes the church, that he becomes one with his church as a husband and a wife become one. This idea, this whole section, this whole like, mm, I, I don't know, as you think about this, and I was thinking about this even doing the wedding because I knew I was gonna preach on this, so while I'm even up there officiating, I'm just reminded of this passage while they're working through the ceremony and everything. And we are reminded that we are chosen and that we are pursued by Jesus Christ. He says, I have chosen you and you are mine as the eternal bridegroom to his bride. You know, if we think that our relationship with Christ is by accident, then we have fooled ourselves. If we think that we initiated love to Jesus Christ, then we are deceiving ourselves. He is the one that pursued us first. He opened that whole conversation and has been relentless in this, passionate in this. And we respond back to him. This whole idea of our role in our relationship with Christ is a response back to him that is such a healthy role because it allows us to recognize that he pursues, he chases after, he provides, he leads, and we just respond with trust, with faith, with love. And that is so good for us as opposed to getting ahead of things, being impatient with things, and whatever it might be in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So we know that he loved the church, gave himself up for the church, sanctified her with his word, desired to present a pure bride, nourished the church, cherished the church, became one with his church. Therefore, we also know about ourselves who we are to be. We are loved, not only as an individual, as a Christ follower, but then we as a local congregation, and also we as the church today across the world. So it's kind of, kind of several different layers, and even church historically. So it's a, you know, a massive texture of layers there, but we are loved, we are sacrificed for, we are sanctified, we are presented as a pure bride, we are nourished, we are cherished, we are one with our eternal groom. What a wonderful reminder for us, especially in those moments when, when we find, we feel like we are, what, um, un, unloved or unlovable, um, rejected, not worthy, uh, not worth of love, whatever it might be, we are reminded of what is the truth as opposed to what the enemy may tell us often. One of the themes within this passage, particularly if you tie it to the entire chapter of Ephesians 5, is the purity of the church. And I do wanna talk about this for a moment because it is a common theme. And so this idea of purity comes to Paul's mind with several moments We'll, we'll read a little more of Ephesians 5 in a moment, but first I want you to see kind of a cool way he writes this. It shows his passion for the church that he started in, in, the, in the city of Corinth. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, he says this, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, right? Using all that language, that marriage language to demonstrate this relationship to our bridegroom. And then he says this, but I am afraid, this is in verse three, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, as a, as a church planner myself, I can relate to this passage, not nearly to the degree, because Paul just crushed it as a leader in the church, but I do find myself saying, wow, the, the work, the effort, the passion, the prayers, how heartbreaking is it when you see those who you have trained up in the Lord wander away. Those of you who are parents of children that you have raised unto the Lord, you know, to the best of the degree you can, uh, it still is heartbreaking when you watch them wander. Very similar relationship that I have with you as a church family. So this church in Corinth, they found themselves ignoring their first love. In a spiritual sense, they were cheating on their eternal husband. Yet his love was steadfast. His love was passionate and he was forgiven consistently and he still is today. So this idea of him being the bridegroom and then for us as the bride to present ourselves pure, that is such a unique characteristic of this conversation. So he describes it a little more. So Ephesians 5, if you have, still have your Bibles open, just go back to verse one. Let's read the first few verses on this. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let me just pause here real quick to say, Paul totally equates sexual immorality and impurity along with covetousness. And I know that there's this tendency to think that sexual immorality is the worst, but let me just say, when you have covetousness also in that conversation, which is like, you know, I really, I want that thing. It could be another person's spouse, or it could be an object of like, a material object, or even immaterial. You could want that person's situation, you know. That is just as, uh, that, that takes our affections from being pure and focused on Christ to then giving our affections over to something that is idolatrous. So just, just so we're aware with like the, how God views these things. But it continues here. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covet, uh, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or, or kingdom of Christ and God. And it's just a little later in that same chapter is what we were reading a moment ago about let husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church. We are reminded of the role of purity in our lives. Let us not become content in drifting in that vigilance. Uh, I, it is easy to allow that, but let us be intentional and obedient to the spirit in that way. All right, so that's one of those passages that describes what it means to be the bride of Christ. There's another one that catches our attention. So with the bride of Christ, Jesus is using this language, Paul is using this language, and in, in the ancient culture, they would have understood it in a slightly different way than today. Often you'd have somebody who, like a man, would betroth himself to his uh, fiance, right? And so that would, be, that would happen, that'd be exciting, and then the guy may go back home like away from the fiance. And for a time period, 
build his home, sometimes attached to the, to the family clan dwelling or the family land, building the home in preparation for when he's gonna come back to, his, to be bride and get her and then take her to their new home. So that kind of language would, or that, that, that scenario would have been far more familiar. I don't, I personally didn't do that. Uh, I don't know, uh, some, some of you might have, uh, especially around here, you're like, yeah, that's the house I built when I was, while my wife was waiting for me. It's like, okay, yeah, cool. But for, for mo- that would have been far more familiar scenario. And so that gives us a little more context when you read a passage like this in John 14. See if you, you, you've heard this verse, but I don't know if you've ever thought of it in this context. John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He is our bridegroom even when he comes and he gets us. Now this is most often described as the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4 says it this way, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Jesus Christ returns for his bride in the same way this would have happened in ancient cultures in a more, you know, a, a normal context. Well, he is returning for his bride and saying, okay, come with me. And so this is another component of being the bride of Christ. It is this patient waiting, this perseverance in the midst of the trial, rather than saying, the fire's too hot, I gotta get out. Instead, I'm waiting on the Lord. Now this is in the the immediate, waiting on his provision, on his protection, on his leadership through a storm, but in the ultimate sense, it is waiting on his return when he comes for his church. If you're like me, it is easy to struggle to wait well. We stink at waiting. I mean, and, and we're not really in a society that, uh, that cultivates a good waiting behavior. You know, not only, and I'm not talking the microwave from, the, what is that, the 70s or 80s or something? I'm talking smartphones and everything. Everything's really instant for us. And it's a struggle for us to wait well. And yet, so, so you have that in your everyday life, like in the, in the every little moments. But then spiritually, we're telling you, you need to wait on the rapture and wait on, the, on, on our bridegroom to return for us. It's like, well, these are two totally opposed concepts. And so we have to kind of cross over from what is normal for us with everything being instant, you know, even instant communication, texting and stuff versus, what, 100 years ago? Like, let me write it in the letter. I'm gonna send it off. 300 years ago, let me put it on a boat. They're gonna find out about it three months from now and then they're gonna get back to me. Like, at least they had a little bit of sense of waiting well, we got none. And so we have to really challenge ourselves, really pray and lean on the Lord's strength to wait well. That makes it really difficult, particularly just in very practically in light of today's topic, makes it difficult if you're kind of in a waiting season when it comes to a relationship, waiting for a spouse or or maybe you're dating, and if you're, the, if you're the girl, maybe you're waiting on the guy to like actually you know, propose. You're like, when's this gonna happen? And in our case, it was kind of the opposite. I kept, I kept putting the ask out there, and uh, 
It wasn't, it wasn't really being reciprocated. So five years, Lynn and I dated, and we laugh about it so much, and that waiting was really difficult. I'm telling you, those last two years was really tough because we were like out just working, and was like, what are we doing here? We should, we should be married. And just because of this, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, and so I have a picture for you guys. Probably most of you haven't seen any of this. This is, there we go. We were like two hours south. Really fun. Oh, that's, that's very cute that you guys are clapping. That's fun. Um, so after, yeah, about five years of long waiting, definitely taught a lot of principles for later in life, and then we've been married all this time now. But my encouragement to you as the bride of Christ is to wait faithfully. It's a lesson that you try to teach your children. It's a lesson that you try to apply your life in other ways, you know, with things. We don't think about it in the spiritual concept, but we're challenged in that. The last passage for us that explains the bride of Christ is revealed when the apostle John is writing Revelation and he gets this picture where uh, later in the book of Revelation, he hears this multitude crying out this declaration. And it's this starting in verse six, halfway through it says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Okay, so that's the last picture we have for us. We're, this is, if you're a follower of Christ, then you're the bride of Christ and you get, you're participating in this scenario here. We, we're gonna be at this union. Now, theologians call this the consummation of all things or with Christ and the church. And there is this marriage supper that occurs. It's like, we have some good meals here on earth, but like, I'm really excited for this meal. I don't know what is gonna happen and what we're gonna eat. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be a good throw down. And so here we have the bride. Let's see here. In this passage, she makes herself ready uh, with what? With righteous deeds. That's kind of a whole nother conversation. But this is walking by the Spirit in, in obedience to what God leads us to. And when I think about righteous deeds, I'm immediately reminded of last week. If you missed last week, you should watch the message online. But we had the McGee's were here and they were describing their prison ministry to us. And if you recall in Matthew, and I think it's 25, Jesus is explaining a scenario to those, and, and they ask, you know, when did we feed uh, those who are hungry? When did we give water to those who are thirsty? When did we visit those in jail? When did we clothe those who are naked? And he says, well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And I was reminded of that last week when they were sharing about their prison ministry and all that they're doing to those who are viewed, you know, the least of these. Friends, when we are doing these acts of service out of worship, not earning salvation, not earning brownie points to be in better position before the Lord, but instead to express what he has done for us to those who need to experience the love of Christ in a very practical way. This is part of fulfilling and being the bride of Christ. So we are to do that. What else is in here? We are pure, displayed with the, these clothes, right? Fine linen, bright and pure. This is often displayed even in our own weddings where there's a white wedding dress and like the whole dress shopping thing, right? You ladies, like this is like a 
whole thing. I mean, it's why it's, a t- it's like well, it's multiple TV shows. I mean, people will just watch shows of people shopping. Like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like, I'm trying to think of a scenario. Like, what show would you and I watch where people are shopping for something? I'm thinking of things, but all of it is stuff that PETA wouldn't really like, so I'm not gonna say. <laughs> but like, yeah, anyway. So ladies will like watch, watch shows of like dress shopping. Like it's a whole thing. Well, for us, we're reminded of the, the significance of this clothing. Also, there, the, the, the church here, the bride is beautiful. It, the, the church is adorned with, be- with beauty. And then one day, the groom will consummate this relationship with a union and then a celebration with the marriage supper. This promised union is a deep hope that every Christian has. And we know with certainty, this is promised to us by our Savior, that he's gonna return for us and we will be unified with him. And so church family, this idea of being the bride of Christ is what we focus on this morning. We remember this, it teaches us Christ's love toward us and also our response to him. Teaches us fantastic dynamics of our identity as followers of Christ. My challenge for you is also when you are attending a wedding, maybe even this fall, a lot of people do weddings around here in the fall because of the beauty and the mountains and all that. When you're there, don't just view it as a ceremony. Allow yourself to view this as a worship service unto the Lord, particularly if it's a Christian wedding in which it's, you know, an acknowledgement of God within the ceremony. But even if it's not, you personally can sit there and you can see, it could even be a movie, if, but that's a little, a little detached. So say it's, say it's a, a, a ceremony that you're, you're sitting there and you're watching. You can be reminded, wow, just as the bride, like here she is and, and the groom is there and they're committing their love to one another. That's, that's what Christ says about us. He says that he is passionate about us and commits his love toward us. And I, I am to do the same and just allow that to be a sanctifying moment for you in your walk, a little bit of a spiritual gut check. Well, you know, how are we doing? And that's how I want us to conclude this morning as we're reflecting on this. You know, when we might be challenged in one way or another with these different passages, particularly in Ephesians 5. And then you have the, the passage on John 14 with preparing the rooms for us. And then this last one in Revelation 19. And they can challenge us in different ways, but as I think about a, mar- a wedding ceremony, as I think about being the bride of Christ, I'm reminded of those initial statements that I ask the groom and the bride when the ceremony starts. I say, do you intend to the groom, do you intend to have your bride as your wife to live together in this holy covenant of marriage? And do you promise to faithfully love her as long as you shall live? And what does Christ say to that sort of statement? He says, I do. Well, what, what do we say? So Christ has said, he said, I do, and he's been totally faithful, per- perfectly faithful in that. Like earthly husbands are not perfect like Jesus is as far as the bridegroom is concerned. But Jesus has been perfect in that. For us, we say I do when we say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, as my atonement for sin, as my means to be right with my heavenly father. But then we must allow ourselves to have, I would say daily, but definitely regular moments of checking. I said I do, but do I need to renew that I do? Because I've been kind of unfaithful. 
to my bridegroom eternally, you know? Or I know positionally I am pure before him, you know, because the, the blood of the lamb cleanses all, purifies us. But, but, you know, I'm still in the flesh on this earth and yeah, I've just been walking in ways that I wouldn't say are pure uh, in the way that you would want it to be. Or, yeah, when it comes to the affections of my heart, I say I do, like, I, I love you, Jesus, but I really also love a couple things that are uh, deceiving the affections of my heart right now. I've been chasing after things. And so I'd like us this morning, as we, as we conclude, to take communion in a way where it's sort of like a spiritual renewing of our vows to the Lord, you know, where we take it and we can find ourselves saying even, I do promise to live this out. I do, I do commit to you, Jesus, as my bridegroom, not just with the loose commitments of this world, but with, to, the, to the best ability I can, Holy Spirit working with, living in me, working, working through me, and guiding me day by day to the best ability I can, I do commit to, to responding to you as my bridegroom. I, I do commit to that day in and day out with endurance, with patience, and, and again, to the best ability I can with, with a, a fierce love of response back to you. I mean, that's, that takes our salvation commitment and our sinner's prayer to a whole nother level, right? It's not just words. It's really demonstrating this. And so, Maddie, if you and the team can come on up here to lead us in this song, we have a song uh, for reflection for us to respond. And um, you can sing along if you like, especially like later on, but as far as how it initially starts, I wanna encourage you to prayerfully uh, come down the aisle, almost similar to a bride walking down the aisle, and then taking these elements. You have the wafer and the juice. This is symbolic of Jesus' body that's broken. And then the juice is symbolic of his blood poured out on the cross. And I think there's no more appropriate way for us to say, I do to the Lord, than than to do so with the Lord's Supper. As we take these elements, we're reminded that our bridegroom didn't just say I do with his words, but he sealed that not with a ring, but with his blood, with his body. Holy cow, that's a whole nother level. So let me pray and, uh, and then we will respond as a church. If you can say, yes, I do, I do back to you, Jesus Christ, as my groom, then you can come on up here take the elements and and we'll continue to worship